Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 9.14 a.m. Central Standard Time. It's the 2nd of March. Jesus, we're already three months in. Well, okay, two months, but still, good God, things flying by, bro. Uh, This is episode 208 of Bitcoin, and let's just get into this little tweet that I got from Jack Mallers about three days ago. He says that Strike saw thousands of dollars worth of payments last weekend alone with only our small controlled beta group. LN is going mainstream. Every time someone makes an LN strike payment, our trading algorithms buy Bitcoin. Bullish. Can't wait to unleash this beast. Okay. Yeah, it's a uh, LN strike or strike, whatever, yeah, however you want to put it. Uh, seems like it's kind of burning up the rails. Uh, this is good for Bitcoin as always. Uh, I'm, I have put my, my hat or my name in that ring, uh, and have not heard a thing out of the LN strike group. So I am going to take that as not them dissing me and being all disrespectful and shit. What I'm going to take it as is that they have so many people that are trying to get into the beta that they don't know what to do. That is good for strike, and what's good for strike is probably good for uh, <laughs> Bitcoin. <laughs> okay, now let's just let's roll right into the news. This is going to be—I don't know—I'm going to try to make this a little bit shorter of a show. I've been going long, even without like a five-minute, eight-minute song. So uh, I'm going to try to keep this a little shorter. Fidelity invests 4.2 million in Hong Kong exchange. Brave New Coins, Alex Lee Lotcher is writing uh, on February the 27th. Fifth largest investment manager in the world, Fidelity Investments, has invested $14.2 million in the company that operates Hong Kong-based crypto asset exchange OSL in a move to expand its involvement in the digital asset industry. So what's going to become a trickle will become a flood. I'm just kind of like commentating right here. Because for when you think about it, yeah, Fidelity Investments is the fifth largest investment manager in the world. A trillion under management in assets under management's got to be over a trillion dollars, probably a couple. I don't know. Uh, they I mean, their Fidelity's huge. They've been around forever. Fourteen point new. Oh God, fourteen point two million dollars is like blowing their nose. All right, but. That trickle will become a flood because if that 14.2 does anything for Fidelity at all, then they're going to invest more and more and more. And then other investment houses will start doing the same. And they, well, they've already started doing the same. But the, the tr- what I'm getting at is that right now it's a trickle. 
but like most dams that are holding back trillions of gallons of water, if a crack appears in that son of a bitch and you got a trickle coming out, the erosive forces of water will not be abated, and that trickle will become a flood. Continuing, Boston-based Fidelity Investment Incorporated has invested $4.2 million to buy a 5.6% stake in Hong Kong-based BC Technology Group Limited, which owns and operates the digital asset exchange OSL. The investment management behemoth bought 17 million shares for a price of 6.5 Hong Kong dollars, or about 83 cents U.S. per share, according to a shareholder's disclosure. Hong Kong Stock Exchange listed BC Group conducted a, or Hong Kong Stock Exchange listed BC Group conducted a 36 million dollar share placement in January, but the investors were only disclosed in February. OSL is a leading Asian digital exchange that caters primarily to professional and institutional investors. The trading platform offers an exchange, a brokerage service, SAAS Solutions, and insured crypto custody. Quote, we're excited to see the world-class equity investors are increasingly participating in the fast-growing digital asset sector and we look forward to reaching new milestones with our industry-leading institutional investors. BC Group CEO Hugh Madden commented on the Fidelity investment. Fidelity's investment in Hong Kong-based BC Group should not come as a surprise to anyone who's been following the asset manager's foray into crypto over the past five years. Fidelity is arguably the most crypto-friendly institutional investment company in the world as early as 2015, the financial services company started to mine Bitcoin and they actually put out to the side BTC. Okay, so they're, they're not confused. They're not confused, people, as to what which one is actual Bitcoin. Okay, so there's that. In addition, Fidelity has launched a blockchain incubator, has accepted charitable donations encrypted or in crypto, and has enabled Fidelity.com customers to view crypto balances on their online accounts. Fidelity's biggest crypto move to date, however, was the launch of the digital asset trading and custody services provider Fidelity Digital Asset Services in 2018. Quote, our goal is to make digitally native assets such as Bitcoin more acceptable to investors or, sorry, accessible to investors. We expect to continue investing and experimenting over the long term with ways to make this emerging asset class easier for our clients to understand and use, said Abigail P. Johnson, chairman and CEO of Fidelity Investments, in a statement when Fidelity Digital Asset Services was launched. So there you go. And like I said, the writing is on the wall for this. Uh, the crack in the dam will widen. It's, I, I, they're going to make money. The sad part is that they're going to make money off of bag holders. But I mean, it's, it's part of the landscape that we find ourselves in. <clears throat> Again, I, I highly recommend to anybody listening, do not get suckered in to the casino that is altcoins, crap coins, scam coins, mimblewimble coins. Yeah, that's for you, Trace. Uh, and ugh, God, that thing... I still haven't heard, we still haven't heard anything out of Trace. Uh, for those of you who are wondering what the hell I'm talking about, Trace Mayer, one of the oldest of the OG Bitcoiners in the space, and literally was one of the primary trainers of 
this, I don't know what it, what to call it. He trained me not to get suckered into crap. He trained me that my keys were my coins and not my keys were not my coins. Kind of taught me how blo- the, the rudiments of blockchain and how it works and why it's important and why uh, all the stuff. And yet last week he's shilling this thing called Mimble Wimble Coin and he burned his reputation pretty. Uh, I, not only was it a substantial burn, uh, I don't think he's coming back from it. I, and if he does come back from it, it's just, I think it's going to be in, in pure shitcoin fashion. And that's really sad to see. But hey, it's not like we haven't seen this thing before. So I, I don't know, man. It's just, it's sad. Other things are sad. Christina Veseleva is writing for Bitcoinist.com on uh, March the 2nd, which would be today. Uh, Ripple locks up 90% of latest XRP escrow release. (laughs) So 90% can't contaminate, I guess. Ripple continues to follow its policy of holding back most XRP tokens from its escrow account. This time, 90% of tokens were returned to the locked address. Well, then why the hell did you release it in the first place? That's my question. In the latest monthly escrow operation, Ripple Inc. returned 90% of its entire amount of 1 billion XRP. Only 100,000 XRP or hobo wine remain at large after the coins move back into the escrow wallet in three large transactions. The largest transaction was noted to return 500,000 XRP. Or is that? No. But that's the largest transaction? Well then, son, that better be 500 million XRP because we're talking about a billion XRP here. So I think we got a typo. The operations match a recent statement by Ripple about its intentions to hold onto most of its XRP locked in escrow. This has the effect of calming the market and possibly establishing a higher XRP price. XRP traded at 23 cents, down 14% due to the dramatic correction last week. But in 2020, XRP has marked markedly higher volumes, constantly above $2 billion per day. XRP at those prices is still seen as a risky bet and a wild card for potential appreciation to much higher price levels. Don't worry, guys. You're going to get fed what you're going to get fed here as to why I'm even talking about hobo wine. This is sort of this is way too much charity by Christina here but be that as it may let's continue the selling of XRP has been a contentious issue in setting the market price for the asset the coins awarded to former Ripple CTO Jeb McCaleb scammer also a potential factor that floods the market with coins earlier airdrops as well as early adoption also weigh down on the price Recent analysis, here's here's where it gets good. Recent analysis also shows that Ripple Inc. or Hobo Wine Inc. is dependent on selling XRP for its profitability. Since RippleNet is still in its early ages, the actual XRP assets are a significant source of cash flow. Ripple CEO was recently cited by the Financial Times, essentially admitting that XRP was an important factor For the bottom line of the organization, XRP, which was generated a few years ago, was initially not a part of Ripple's idea to offer an alternative interbank payment system, which I I automatically call bullshit. They didn't say it was, but it was. Now here it is, quote, well, XRP is one source. 
I don't know how to answer that because if you took away our software revenues, that would make us less profitable. <laughs> if you took away all of our XRP, that makes us less profitable. So I don't think about it as one thing. Garlinghouse clarified later, quote, we would not be profitable or cash flow positive without selling XRP. I think I've said that. We have now. Let me, I'm just going to read it again. We would not be profitable or cash flow positive without selling our bags to you, the guys that are buying our bags. Stop with the XRP. All they're doing is taking your money so that they can cash flow. Cash flow for what is my big question. It's not like they're just continuously generating anything. They're not generating anything. And they're taking your money. Stop it. Ripple keeps adding banks and partners. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to boost the usage of its on-demand liquidity on RippleNet. But so far, actual XRP usage is limited. And the asset depends mostly on open market speculation. What do you think about Ripple's escrow operation in March? Share your thoughts in the comment section below. I got a comment. I got. Uh, it, it appears that that whole thing, their partnership with MoneyGram, that it, all the, the hobo whiners are, or hobo winos are talking about, and, and they always point to that. They're always like going, yeah, but look at MoneyGram. Money, it's MoneyGram's using XRP. They're not using Bitcoin. Yeah, because Bitcoin is not paying MoneyGram to use Bitcoin like Ripple is. That's right. Ripple Labs has been paying MoneyGram to use XRP. I'm going to say it again. Ripple Labs and every all the people behind Ripple and XRP and Labs and whatever, it's all one thing. Stop thinking that it's not. It is. They've been paying MoneyGram. It's a bribe. Ultimately, what this is, is a simple advertisement. Like if I wanted to advertise Bitcoin and as a podcast on somebody's show, I would pay them. At least that's honest. At least that's me saying I need exposure. I'm going to buy this ad on, oh, I don't know, one of my other favorite podcasts, There's, of which there are, are many, but a f only a few if you compare it to the entire field. At least it's honest because I'm... I give, the, I give them a check. They give me airtime. I don't go around and, and, and re-advertising that as, look, Guy Swan's talking about me on his podcast. Oh, look, Adam Meister's talking about me on his podcast. So therefore, I must be valuable. No, that's not the way this shit works. But apparently to Brad Garlinghouse and Ripple, that is the way it works because they've been paying money, Graham. They've been paying MoneyGram. They have paid MoneyGram to use XRP. I, I don't know how else to tell you guys to get out of Ripple. If Hopefully nobody that listens to this podcast actually is in Ripple. But if you're a newcomer and you're holding a bag of Ripple, please get rid of it. Please, for the love of God. Not investment advice, but please get rid of your Ripple. Ugh. Why enterprise blockchains fail? Can you guess? 
no economic incentives. I've said it before, and we're going to figure out what it is that Stephanie Herder has to say about it on Coindesk.com. She's writing this sometime today. Stephanie Herder, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Enterprise Blockchain is in the doldrums. Oh, only three years ago, Gartner predicted that blockchain would produce $3.1 trillion in new business value by 2030. But pilot project after pilot project has been announced to great fanfare only, never to be heard from again. Industry leaders publicly debate whether the technology is passe. The, tr- the trough of disillusionment, Gartner's term for the post-hype period when people inevitably realize the technology's limitations, has arrived. We've been telling you this. I've, I've been screaming it, and everybody else that knows anything about this stuff has been screaming it. 99.999% of all the world's problems do not require a blockchain. There's only maybe two that do. Money is one of them. But for the most of the rest of the stuff that's on the face of the planet, you don't need a blockchain. And if you try to blockchain it, it's probably going to fail. So is enterprise blockchain over? Well, not necessarily. Blockchain is hardly the first emerging technology to struggle to move from inflated expectations to reliable commercial viability. But if it is to have any chance of delivering on its initial promise, the approach that teams take when designing and launching products needs to change. First and foremost, firms have been putting technical design ahead of economic design. They prioritize hiring tech teams and developing code and then delay important discussions about the value of the product uh, and users' incentives to adopt it. By the time the team addresses incentive design, teams have boxed themselves in to a narrow set of economic design options that are compatible with the existing code or face deleting and rewriting huge chunks of the platform. That's that's one hell of a descriptive uh, paragraph. I mean, that one really is. They're just designing before they have reason to exist. It's a solution in search of a problem. And every time you get into that shit, it's probably going to fail. Because generally speaking, if you've got a solution to a problem that doesn't exist, the only way to get that problem to exist is to create it. And at that point, you're no better than somebody who writes viruses for McAfee Corporation. Blockchain platforms are economic systems. Blockchain-based consortia allow enterprises to share, buy, and sell valuable data and to use that pooled data to create new goods and services, which can then be monetized. Their economic design is just as important as their technical design, and this must be reflected in the development process. Second, teams are choosing the wrong initial use cases and founding members typically based on the following questions. One, what is the biggest client that we can get on this network? And two, which use case will be most profitable when the network is mature? Mm-hmm. Firms want to make a return on their investments, and these questions reflect that desire. However, they betray a fundamental misunderstanding of the economics of blockchain networks and the path to creating long-term monetization. Like social networks, blockchain consortia derive much of their value from network effects, that the value of the network to each participant increases with each additional participant. Many teams are familiar with this concept, which was popularized by Google's chief economist, Hal Varian, and UC Berkeley professor Carl Shapiro in the late 1990s, but few projects 
understand that different use cases have different types of network effects and the dynamics of these network effects impact how each use case develops when launching a network, bigger is not always better. Securing, say, Walmart as a founding member does not ensure a network will succeed. Instead, it is important to understand the network effects of potential use of, of potential early use cases and align them with the initial user base. First, <clears throat> or oh, I'm sorry, how should firms and projects approach this? Well, first, any consortium project must select an initial use case that can deliver value for a new sparsely populated network. All other elements being equal, use cases that require bilateral interactions with two participants are easier to bootstrap than use cases requiring multilateral or multi-participant interactions. A use case that facilitates data sharing between a doctor and a patient, for example, will be able to deliver value earlier than a product that requires the doctor, the patient, and the insurance company all to join. Second, select founding members that will be able to generate value immediately through interactions with each other. For example, social networks such as Facebook exhibit local network effects. Users benefit when other users join who are in the existing underlying social or business networks. Use cases with local network effects may want to follow Facebook's lead and launch with a small, highly connected subset of the underlying network, in Facebook's case, Harvard undergrads, to demonstrate value in the short term. Once the network has launched, the set of use cases and the network membership must grow hand in hand. The optimal growth path for each depends on a number of factors, including the network effect of each use case, the level of marketing penetration the network has achieved, and overlap in resource contributions and participants among different use cases. A healthcare-focused network that launches with a product for doctors and patients, followed immediately by a product connecting insurance companies with each other, is making life hard for itself. The second product has a different user base than the first and must effectively be rebootstrapped from scratch. If the network instead rolls out multiple products that serve doctors and patients or products that connect doctors and patients with insurance companies, it can build on its existing user base and data contributions and make the most of its initial groundwork. With the initial use cases up and running, projects are tempted to move straight into maximizing revenues. They want to recoup their investments and demonstrate to their sponsors that their new endeavor is succeeding by achieving early monetization. As difficult as it is, teams need to be willing to focus on promoting adoption in the short term and postpone the focus on revenues until later. Products with network effects deliver more value as they grow, and users will be <coughs> willing to pay more to use the network when there is widespread market penetration, the bulk of financial reward will come in this stage. A well-developed monetization plan needs to take this into account. Charging early users too much, too soon, or imposing too high upfront costs will stunt the growth of the network and prevent the network from ever reaching market penetration. Offering early adopters discounted fees or even subsidies for significant adoption costs will pay off in the long term and allow the network to achieve the yet elusive holy grail of monetization. So that's going to do it for, for her. Uh, she's got some really good points. But one thing <clears throat> that I'm not sure, and, you know, I'm not sure if it's going to be absolutely correct, but I think there's something to the, the following thought. Bitcoin, the, the network, the development, everything. I mean, it's history, it's development, 
its use cases, uh, proof of work, the the difficulty adjustments versus versus hash rate over all that. Bundle it all up, put it in a nice little box, and then put a bow on it. Now pick up the box and in a great big black sharpie on all six sides of that box, I want you to write meme. M-E-M-E. Bitcoin itself is a meme. What the, the one thing about memes that is true, you can't design them. They just happen. Everybody, I, the, except for possibly, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Pierre Rochard. I can't remember who it was. It was over at the first BitBlock boom was the whole thing about memes. He gave a huge talk about memes that completely triggered everybody that was not Bitcoin and number go up and orange coin. Good was two of the memes that he was talking about. Um, These things, they just, the memes just happen. Okay. They, they happen to like, it's sort of like, I don't know, sifting, like, I don't know, different size rocks through a chain link, you know, or some kind of like chain fence where the big rocks that can't fit through the holes stay where they are, but the little rocks that do fit through the holes can pass through. A meme is kind, memes are kind of like that. They have to actually be like the, the whole, all the information that we're getting on a daily basis, which is a shit ton has to be, or rather is sifted, whether it has to be, or we have to put our energy into it to do it is beside the point. Sifting happens. The things that fall through the mesh, in this case, we're talking about memes, happen because they happen to be the right size. You can also look at, a, look at the whole situation from a biological standpoint. There happens to be some, I don't know, some kind of chemistry that's hanging off of, I don't know, let's say a mammalian cell. And it, it's, it's there, but it doesn't really do anything. And then all of a sudden a mutation happens in the body and a, a, a protein is created on accident that just happens to fit lock and key to that chemistry that's hanging off the side of the mammalian cell. And when it does, it changes the conformation of the internal chemistry that it's connected to inside the cell and maybe magic happens. Maybe instant death happens. I, it, it, I don't know. That's the whole thing is that it could be good. It could be bad. But the, the point is, is that this is sort of like an evolutionary thing. It, uh, something is created and it just so happens to fit a particular thing. Or you might say niche. I'm not exactly sure. Um, Bitcoin is that. And everybody's been trying to replicate the meme. And it's the wrong way to go about this shit. My, one of the working theories that I have is that if you have a blockchain that does something like tracks bananas on the blockchain, banana coin, what's my economic incentive to secure and make your blockchain that which it is? Help you mine the blocks, help decentralize your situation so that it truly is decentralized so that it can truly be immutable. If there's no economic incentive, then I'm not mining your chain and you're left with the decentralized ledger. And at that point, it's not, A, it's not a blockchain just because it has a chain of blocks doesn't make it a blockchain. 
all that. We have to remember this. And this is why most of the Bitcoin maximalists are screaming about other coins saying there's no use case. And if there was a use case, is it stupid enough or is it, is it not stupid enough to enable somebody like me to go out? You know, I think I want to get a Raspberry Pi, load up the mining software and mine that son of a bitch, because that's what it's going to take. The problem, the, the huge problem is, is that Bitcoin is a meme. It happened to fit a particular niche at a particular time. And you're just not really going to be able to pop that son of a bitch out of there. Uh, that's why Bitcoin is important. It's, it incentivizes me to help take care of it. Now, here's the thing. I run a full node. I am very proud that I run a full node. Does that full node make me a damn bit of Bitcoin? No, it doesn't. So at this point, I'm actually participating in a network that doesn't directly give me money. You're not really going to be able to overcome that as some kind of other coin. You're not going to be able to overcome my desire as a human to go ahead and let go of maybe a dollar, you know, a dollar a month worth, worth of electricity to simply run a full node that is not going to pay me back, or at least it's not going to pay me back directly in Bitcoin as if I was mining it. And no, I am not planning on getting into the mining thing. So keep that in mind whenever Trace Mayer comes and tries to shill you Mimble Wimble coin, because honestly, I'm still really sad about that whole thing. But we have other fish to fry, namely a sand dollar. Bahamas races ahead with its sand dollar digital currency. That's right. They named it sand dollar. <laughs> Christina Combin is writing on March the 2nd for Bitcoinist.com. The, ba the, the Bahamian Central Bank is way ahead of most countries when it comes to launching their CBDC, in fact. Bitcoinist recently reported that it was on track to have it rolled out to all islands by the second half of 2020. <laughs> According to the report today, the sand dollar is now available on the island of Abaco. This will give its inhabitants easier access to financial services. According to Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance K. Peter Turnquist, the first pilot project of the digital Bahamian dollar was introduced by the country's central bank in December. This began in the geographically dispersed islands of the Exumas, of which only a few of the 365 islands are inhabited. The project has now been extended to its fourth largest island collection, the Abacos. Turnquest spoke at, a, at the launch of the digital dollar in Abacos, saying, quote, a few months ago, the Abaco Islands sustained catastrophic damage to their infrastructure, various economic sectors, and their very fabric of their lives. Hurricane Dorian was one we will never forget, but it is our hope that through the sand dollar, the Abaco Islands can find some normalcy again, especially as it relates to their financial sector. Ain't nobody got time for that. No shit. He added... The Bahamian government was in full support of the digital innovation and was, quote, committed to ensuring the success of the sand dollar on every island in the Bahamas. Sell, sell, sell. He clarified that the sand dollar is the exact equivalent of its paper version in that it is fully backed by the external reserves of the central bank. 
He also said that for those people who had sustained great property damage and even lost everything, this would give give them easier access to financial services. I've lost everything. What I need is a zero interest loan. Quote. No, I'm sorry. For example, they can now make payments through their mobile devices without incurring fees and direct peer-to-peer transfers. Just use Bitcoin Man or the Lightning Network for, quote, furthermore, the consumers can feel secure as the sand dollar offers multi-factor authentication where they can use facial recognition, biometrics, or a password to access their sand dollar app on their mobile devices, end quote. When it comes to the security and privacy of the transactions, he reassured his citizens on two counts, quote, it is also important to note that the sand dollar is not anonymous, but it is confidential. The central bank is working diligently to ensure the safety and security of every consumer in the digital sphere. During the pilot projects, one of the key components to be worked upon will be the use of the sand dollar with offline functionality. This is something that would be absolutely vital in the case of natural disasters that the islands frequently face. Turnquest said, quote, the sand dollar will revolutionize the way business is conducted throughout our islands. Once again, the government of the Bahamas is in full support of this initiative, and we look forward to the continued rollout in the rest of the Bahama Islands. End quote. While world superpowers take steps launching their own digital currencies, the Bahamas is way ahead. It may be able to teach some vital lessons about the effect of currency digitization far better or sorry, for better or for worse. So that's the end of that. But offline usage, where that sounds familiar. Oh, yes, OpenDime. We've had that for years. We've had that for years and years and years. And, years. and no, you're not going to really be able to replicate that with what, with what these people are talking about. Uh, no, uh, nope, nope. No, BIS paper reckons with P2P payments, tokenized securities, central bank digital currencies. So Fat Man says, is this capitulation? Anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about, uh, take a take a peek at the at a picture of August Augustin Karstens and see what you think about that. On March the first, we have Danny Nelson writing for CoinDesk. Researchers at the bank. For International Settlements, or BIS, are grappling with the future of payments so much so that their newest quarterly report, released Sunday, is entirely dedicated to what that potential revolution holds. So they've gone from, it's a scam and it'll never work and we're going to outlaw it and it's painful and it's evil and you're, you're engaging in child molestation because of it. No. No, now they've capitulated. Now we've got an entire quarterly report about all this stuff. So again, expect the floodgates to break free as as the trickle uh, erodes all the concrete around it. And it's 138-page look at what lies beyond the financial horizon. The Swiss-based institution reckoned with the coming trends that may well shape tomorrow's payments infrastructure. Tokenized securities central bank digital currencies, cross-border payments, and peer-to-peer innovations. Head of research, Huan Song Shin, said, quote, the pace of change and potential for disruption have made examining new forms of payment systems a priority for, oh, oh, it's a priority now. 
It's a priority for policymakers. My God. The most transformative option for improving payments is a peer-to-peer -peer arrangement that links payers and payees directly and minimizes the number of intermediaries, BIS General Manager Augustin Karsten said in his introduction to the report. And oh my God, let that sink in. Here is a man that last year was calling all of this bullshit. And now, between eating burgers, he's telling us that this is the future. We need, it's, yeah, oh my God, the most transformative option is a peer-to-peer -peer arrangement that links payers and payees. We have that. It's been around for almost 11 years. You know, want to know what it's called? Well, I'm not even going to have to use the name now, am I? Everybody knows what it's called. Tokenizing securities on a distributed ledger may streamline the settlement cycle, making it more efficient than some investors are willing to bear. Oh, unfairly cheap, <laughs> the report said. <laughs> the seemingly paradoxical conclusion comes from BIS researchers' expectations that traders are attuned to the sluggish settlement cycles, mired in hurdles and intermediaries, and liquidity management concerns already in place. They operate under these limitations. Yeah, the shit that you put on yourself. The DLT-based system, if a DLT-based system were to disrupt the system by cutting out intermediaries, for instance, the resulting efficiencies may well change the market's back-end realities, which in turn could spook the stakeholders used to the old ways or used to the used to the old ways implications. What that's a terrible sentence. Sorry, guys. Quote, market participants might not want to move to shorter settlement cycles, as this could increase liquidity requirements and give market makers less time to source the cash or securities needed for settlement, the report said. This risk-reward conundrum comes against researchers' wider dive into the future of securitization. In looking forward, the Basel-based institutions team found plenty of short-term problems that need resolution before any meaningful DLT security system is implemented, like ongoing legal questions over security tokens. Once these are settled, yet more questions on issues like operational risks remain. That's because DLT and smart contracts are yet to be proven in the world of clearing and settlement, bullshit, we have Bitcoin. According to the report, they'll also need to grapple with the prevailing account-based systems. Quote, the ability of tokenized systems to interoperate with account-based systems will be the key to their success, the researchers said. Researchers' postulations on securities tokenization was just one future-forward feature. Ugh, future-forward feature, that's a mouthful of a quarterly report fully dedicated to potential revolutions in international payments. One of the bigger stories in banking circles is digital money. The bank has plenty of questions around CBDCs. Should they be retail or wholesale focused, account-based or token-based? Ought they run on a distributed ledger, a centralized model, or a hybrid system? Are CBDCs necessary at all? BIS does not definitively answer those questions, in its section on, quote, the technology of retail central bank digital currency, end quote, but its researchers do plot out the considerations each would evolve. For instance, they clarify that there's no point developing digital money that lacks advantages over the existing payment systems. Consumers will not use a CBDC less convenient than cash or credit card, and retailers will not tolerate a system unable to run on peak demand. That's one area where DLT-based CBDC may falter, the researchers say. 
consensus mechanisms often slow down transaction throughput, spelling potential trouble for a retail-facing system that must shoulder millions of often small dollar payments a day. Even so, wholesale systems, large-scale payments between banks and key players, may fit easier into some of DLT's consensus limitations, the researchers say. How decentralized a CBDC system is, is also in question. Decentralization eliminates the risk of a central point of failure, but it also raises the possibility of new vulnerabilities. Quote, the key vulnerability of a conventional architecture is the failure of the top node, top node, for example, via a targeted hacking attack. The key vulnerability of DLT is the consensus mechanism, which may be put under pressure, for example, by a denial of service type of attack, according to the report. Banking continues, bankers continue to argue over DLT and CBDC. As the BIS researchers note, existing trials have not always been encouraging, with some central banks stating publicly their fears that DLT is not the, same, the salve some make it out to be. Against this, though, some banks are indeed pushing forward with DLT-based CBDC trials. Essentially, BIS chief Karstens said in his introduction, the world needs to consider the impact of radically new and different back-end payment infrastructures, infrastructure offers. Libra has kicked central banks into high gear, though it remains unclear what these entities might ultimately do or if stablecoins will be the harbinger of financial doom some make them out to be. BIS framed the issue as enduring and unanswered. It emphasized the need for a global response and then framed its recently launched innovation hub as a clearinghouse from, from which such a response might rise. arise. Ugh. The innovation hub will work with bankers and monetary policy wonks to develop frameworks around digital innovations with spokes in Switzerland, Hong Kong, and Singapore. The hub, according to BIS, is well positioned to develop cohesive policies around disparate networks. The quarterly quarterly report primes the Innovation Hub's debut. As envisioned by BIS, it will be tasked with digging into the questions posed by digital innovations across payments, settlements, money, and more. It will not shy away from the most philosophical query of all, Carson said in the report, quote, a key question informing the BIS Innovations Hub's work is whether money itself needs to be reinvented for a changing environment or whether the emphasis should be on improving the way it provided and used and and used he said okay um i'm thinking of a forest floor and i'm thinking of of taking a shovel and digging like i don't know a trench that is as deep as i think it needs to be dug so that i can put a barrier into that trench of maybe concrete or wood or 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 something and why do i want to do this well because i i want to be able to control the growth of, of the fungus that's in the soil of, of which there's a lot in fact if if it wasn't for the fungus we wouldn't have anywhere close to what we see plant life on the planet but that's another story so i'm going to block it's it's the ability for that fungus to spread through the soil and 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 keep it contained you know what that fungus is going to do it's going to route around, over, through, and under whatever barrier you set in front of it. That's the difference here. Everything else you've been able to either sequester or modify or change to your own uses or something. 
I hate to say it, but this time it's different because this time it is different. You, you've, you're up against, at this point, you're up against a force of nature and it cannot be controlled. It will not be sequestered. It will not, it, it can be modified, but those modifications, like any kind of mutation in evolution, they will either, they will either survive on their own merits, but most of them will die. And the, but it doesn't matter because the entire network of the fungus is branching out as we speak, and there's no way that you can contain it. You can't damn it. You can't dig a, a deep enough trench to make sure that it doesn't get to the other side of your barrier. And that's all these people are trying to do. Everything about this report seems to be, okay, we were wrong. This is going to happen and there's nothing we can do about it. So we have to be able to contain it. We have to be able to mutate it to where it looks like something that we can control. And I'm here to tell you that before my last breath on this planet, these guys will have figured out that they were unable to do anything effectively against Bitcoin because it's the nature of nature to get fed up in its containment and break loose. The trickle will become the flood. I guarantee it. That's going to do it for morning roundup number one. Let's do some vitals. I've got Bitcoin at $8,795 US. Is that my low? Let's at least look for the high. It looks like I got a high over a bit asset at 8,880. I do have a low. It's going to be over at CoinsBit at 8,792. So we're looking square at the face of $100 in, you know, maybe about $100 in trading range. 311,000 transactions were made in the last 24 hours with about 13,000 transactions being made per hour. Six, oh, ooh, this low volume, very low, very, oy, very low volume, dude. 700,000 BTC have been sent in the last 24 hours with only 28,000 BTC being sent on average per hour with the average transaction value being 2.17 BTC and the median transaction value only being 0 0.018 BTC or about 150 bucks US. Block time is low at nine minutes, 10 seconds. We have 0.1 BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis, 16.5 BTC being taken overall in fees in the last 24 hours. The hash rate, well, yeah, there's a story about hash rate, but right now, it, uh, according to BitInfo charts, we've had an increase of 11%. 11% in the past 24 hours, bringing us up to 128 exahashes per second. That's 128 exahashes per second. Yes, we've seen yet another all-time high on hash rate. Uh, last time nobody did anything for Bitcoin was sometime yesterday, according to the GitHub last commit. Ethereum is at 227, Bcash is at 326. BSV is at 240, Litecoin is at 60, Ethereum Classic is at $8 and change, Dogecoin eh, struggling 0.0024. With 30,000 transactions, however, it's really walking all up and down Litecoin's ass. 
let's see what my node has to say about things. My node, uh, or my node, is it like, is it my bit or bit? My node BTC, I think, is mynodebtc.com. Just look at Google my node and you'll probably find it. Uh, I'm, I'm reading the hash rate here as uh, 115 exahashes. I've got 30 megabytes of unconfirmed transactions in the mempool. That's about 20,000 unconfirmed transactions. All of the last 10 blocks are full. Uh, Lightning Network. Now I've been using 1ml.com forward slash statistics, but it's it's got some problems. Uh, I was talking about this, uh, I guess, on the Friday show. Um, it looks like some of the pieces of their metrics are broken. And I mean, way broke, way, way broke. Although it looks like a few of them are still, are still steady. We'll, we'll, I'll talk about the broke ones here in a second. We've got 11,600 nodes uh, in total. We've got 36,321 channels open and we have 896 Bitcoin in the network. That is $7.9 million of liquidity chilling out right now. Uh, now, here's where it's broke. Number of new nodes is one. The number of new channels is two. And given the, the funkiness that I've seen over the last couple of times that I've been to 1ML, I'm going to conclude that these are broken. Uh, because the number of new channels is, I don't know, it just, we should have more nodes here on a day over day basis. And we should also have new, uh, a lot more new channels than two on a day over day basis. So be that as it may, we may, I may have to look around for another uh, statistics for the lightning network. If any of you guys out there have a favorite that you would like me to look at for a possible replacement for the one ML stuff, please let me know. I'm at B E N N D seven, seven on Twitter. Again, that is, B E N N D seven, seven on Twitter. That's going to do it for vitals. Welcome to morning roundup part two. We'll start this one off with hilarity. Bitcoin cashes misdirected transactions make up a $2.8 million jackpot. Segwit may have left cash up for grabs. This is Mike Dalton writing for CryptoBriefing.com. And we'll see which side of the shitcoin fence Mike falls on after we get finished with this one. Millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin cash, and I will refer to it now as Bcash, has been misplaced due to, er due to erroneous transactions. Ever since Bcash forked from Bitcoin in 2017, users have inadvertently sent transactions to nested SegWit addresses, a type of address that Bcash does not support. Later changes to SegWit rules caused the pool of loss funds to grow in 2018 and 2019. Coinmetrics estimates that a minimum of 19,000 BCH has been lost over time. Now, it has dug into past events to find out how much has been recovered and how much is left. In 2017, more than 400 BCH was at stake, worth around $500,000 at the time. To access those funds, miners needed to improve their chances at mining a block. To do so, they would have needed to spend $15,000 to rent out 
a small fraction of Bitcoin's mining hash rate for a day. In return, they would gain a 63% chance of mining the jackpot and earning $500,000. Though one miner seemingly attempted to reap a reward in this way, he never actually succeeded due to the difficulty in finding mining pools that were willing to break certain standard rules. Ultimately, the Bcash community recovered the funds. BTC.com and the Reddit user BCH Segwit Cover distributed the lost currency back to its proper owners for a finder's fee. Oh, that nice. However, much of that Bitcoin ca- or Bcash 402 BCH went unclaimed. Though BTC.com continued to recover user funds, missing funds continued to grow. Hard forks in November of 2018 and May of 2019 modified the rules around SegWit recovery. In the months between those two changes, nearly 4,000 BCH accumulated worth $1.6 million at the time. When a miner attempted uh, to obtain those funds in 2019, uh, large mining pools forced a chain reorganization. This prevented the user from profiting and it sent funds back to the proper owners. <coughs> the mining pool BTC top succeeded in recovering about 3,800 BCH, but this only represents about half of all the Bitcoin cash that has been lost and found over time. <coughs> Excuse me. Coin metrics suggest that 9,128 BCH currently worth $2.8 million, is still unaccounted for. Potentially ill-gotten mining rewards are entirely unrelated to Bcash's ongoing mining tax controversy, which has attracted much more attention over the past several weeks. In January, several mining pools proposed directing 12.5% of the block rewards toward infrastructure development. Mining pools plan to enforce this by orphaning blocks from non-compliant miners, a later revision proposed reducing the tax over time, but this has done little to earn the community's approval. Dissidence continues to grow. BCHN has recently released a drop-in mining client that allows miners who disagree with the taxation plan to comply with futures upgrades. This could potentially avoid a chain split similar to the one that created BSV, according to some commentators, since the taxation plan will ultimately be enacted through voting. Its future is uncertain. Well. That, Mike, you got like a lot of like really old information here on that whole uh, Bcash mining tax thing. I won't even get into it, but I've, I've covered it before. But back to the, the thing at hand. This is why we Bitcoin and we don't accept cheap knockoff substitutes in Bitcoin's place. BCH is a scam coin run by a scammer named Roger Ver. Okay. If the feds come knocking on his door or he gets like, I don't know, what do they call it? Disappeared or rendered or whatever they call it. Cause he lives in Japan. He's, he's not allowed back in the United States to live. He, he can visit apparently, but he's not going to be getting, uh, he's tried to get his uh, passport back and claim his reclaim his citizenship as a United States citizen. But State Department told him to F straight off. <laughs> so he's not getting that back. But you never know. If they get if the SEC gets pissed off enough, you never know. They can work a deal out with the State Department to go render his ass. I don't think it'll happen. But the point is, is that he's got a door that you can Hello, Mr. Ver, we have some questions. He can be found. That's the problem. That's why you don't want leaders in your in your coin. 
And if you're holding any other coin than Bitcoin, sorry for you, but dude, uh, and this is one of the, and of course, this is one of the other reasons. This has been a problem ever since the creation of Bcash. People sending to the wrong address because a lot of these addresses look alike and they were sending them to SegWit addresses, even though SegWit wasn't activated and is never going to be activated on BCH because that really, that really occludes their reason for being. And they don't really have a reason for being, but for them, it would occlude, occlude their reason for being. It's, it's a circus. You don't want to have any part of something that is this easy to lose. Where you, I mean, but it, it, it also does, uh, it, it does bring into the, to the fore, the notion of sanitation. When you're sending actual Bitcoin, you want to make sure that you are sending it, sending it to the correct address. So check, check again, then check three times. <clears throat> the way that I normally do it, if for, you know, really low amounts, is I check like, I don't know, I'll look for like a visual marker in the send to address. And I'll usually start looking right around, I don't know, maybe the middle, somewhere out to the, you know, I'll just pick a point. But let's say for now, it's like, let's say it's like halfway in between the first letter and the middle letter, right? And I'll start looking for some kind of visual cue, like three, oh God, like, I don't know, three capitals in a row. And then I'll look at that and say, okay, like uh, BBB 069. And then I'll go to the address I have to send to, and I'll look in roughly the same place and check. And if it matches up, then I do it again in another part of the address. And after that checks out, I do it again in another part of the address. And then at the very end, after I do this about five or six times, I look at the very ends, the very, the, the very start and the very end of the address, and I'll look for four letters. And if those match up to my send address, I'm at that point, I've gone over 80% of the actual address and, and verified that it is indeed the correct address. And you want to do that or some semblance thereof. You want to be more than sure that you're sending it to the right address. Otherwise, <clears throat> you'll probably never get it back. So continuing on now, uh, trigger warning, there's potential for shit coinery here, but disclaimer, I use the brave browser. I like the brave browser. And the reason I like it is because it's really functional. It's got one hell of an ad blocker up and it really works for like off party uh, or uh, other like, you know, YouTube, I don't get, I mean, I have yet to see YouTube be able to break the ad block from Brave. Now, some of the news sites are better at it. And I do have to like, you know, every once in a while, pause Brave. But for the most part, this thing is rock solid. I don't really have any problems with it. It's pretty slick. It's got everything that Chrome has, you know, and then they, they added the basic attention token, which is the shitcoin, And that's the part of it that I don't like, and I don't use it. I don't even care. I've, I've been asked to, to donate the bat that I have because we all got airdropped bat. Honestly, I can't even take the time. I am so uninterested in getting into that crap, that, that coin that is not Bitcoin that I'm literally just going to, I'm just going to let it sit there. But the browser, 
the browser is good. Okay. And I have to admit that even though I cannot stand altcoins. So that's the disclaimer. Paul de Havilland is writing on February the 28th for cryptobriefing.com that Brave Browser adds 404 Wayback Machine Archive Redirect. Love it. <clears throat> Brave continues to drive innovation in the browser wars. With its 1.4 version just released, users who navigate to a 404 page not found page will be automatically taken to an archived version of the page with one click. The 404 detection system will incorporate a Wayback Machine lookup process in the browser with direct access to the archived page. The browser will also check for 14 other error codes. When users arrive at a page that, quote, cannot be found, they can simply click on the check for save version button to prompt the Wayback Machine to look for an archive. <clears throat> 404 detection and archive playback is available on other browsers, but native Wayback Machine 404 support is only supported by the Brave desktop browser. Brave's incorporation of the Wayback Machine service marks the second time the privacy-centric browser has partnered with the Internet Archive. In 2017, archive.org partnered with Brave to accept donations in cryptocurrency to fund its operations. By April last year, they had raised around $200 or $2,500 worth of BAT tokens. That's that basic attention crap coin. The error page redirect in initiative opens up over 900 billion URLs and 400 billion web pages archived by the Wayback Machine since its launch 23 years ago. The service claims to add many hundred million more archived URLs every day. <clears throat> Studies suggest that the average lifespan of a single web page is somewhere between 44 and 100 days. Last month, Product Hunt named Brave Browser with a privacy-focused product of 2019 award in the Golden Kitty Awards. Oh, kitty cat. Says meow. <laughs> okay. Again, I like Brave. I can't help it. It's a good product, and I am not required. I am not required at all to use the bat. Now, the guys over at Gab forked this whole repository for the Brave browser and stripped out the, the bat wallet. I have been really remiss in playing around with that thing. And I know I should, but it goes into, it, it kind of like speaks of uh, efficiency here. I already have all my tabs set up. I already have like, I mean, I know I can transfer all this stuff to, to the, the Gab version, but right now I don't need to. Now, here's what'll make me stop using Brave. If they force me in some way, shape, form, fashion, or another to use the BAT, I'm gone. Uh, it's, it's irrevocable. I will go back to using freaking Firefox or just regular Chrome before I will touch Brave if they force me to do anything with BAT. So beware. That would be the only reason that I would use or start using the Gab version. I'm not real uh I'm not real thrilled with Gab and because they kick I don't know, they basically I don't know I don't know exactly what they did, but I know that they have a problem with people being in the adult entertainment industry. Hey. You can think what you want. You really can. It is up to you. You are on this planet 
by the grace of God to be able to do what you think you need to be doing or think what you need to be thinking, and that's fine. As long as you don't mess with my property or impinge my ability to go and do shit, hey, you do whatever it is you want to go do. That's fine. But once you start forcing people to either not be a part of a community or something like that because of something that you deem as reprehensible, that is actually more reprehensible. Unless you're, here's where I draw the line. I'm not going to be part, and I don't really care about people that are that are not being, are able to be part of sacrificing children, let's say. No, okay? Because that destroys somebody's property. Am I saying children are property? No. But my feelings towards children are my property. And when you damage that, you're damaging my property. It's not all that hard. The ethics of this whole thing is not all that hard. Okay, so I know it sounds weird me talking about that kind of thing, but it's true. You cannot force me to do something or to not be part of something that I want to be part of or do and and ex- and expect me to be okay with it. Likewise, if you force somebody else to do that, I've got a problem with it. So I'm not all that happy about Gab's decisions over the past year. And that's also one of the reasons why I don't really necessarily care about diving into their particular version of the Brave browser. But apparently we're all getting jobs. We are, dude, I'm so bullish. I'm so bullish that I have to do it. Bye, bye, bye. That's right. 16 new jobs that only exist in the crypto industry. Despite the ups and downs of the market, a lot of jobs in crypto and blockchain are starting to emerge. Here's a look at the hottest, hottest. It's hot, baby. New job descriptions. Charles DeHossi is writing for Decrypt.co February the 29th. <clears throat> Whether you believe crypto spring is coming, the crypto jobs market is already starting to bloom. Oh, no, you're not, you're not a fiction author, dude. Stop it. I hate, I, I, I'm sorry, I gotta say it. I, I just cannot stand that kind of thing. Bloom, spring, no. Uh, despite the ups and downs of the crypto markets, employment sites are still registering brisk demand for the blockchain savvy. The blockchain savvy. <laughs> despite a mostly meh year in crypto, crypto-related jobs increased by 26% according to an end-of-year study on Indeed.com. An earlier report by Electric Capital helped paint a picture of that job market. Thanks to the growth of Bitcoin, DeFi, and increased awareness of enterprise blockchain, the number of full-time blockchain developers has increased by 13% year-over-year by the summer of 2019. For chart fans, Devin Bajir from LinkedIn has identified a correlation between the price of Bitcoin and blockchain developer hiring. Oh wow, it has got it's got the graph here and and yeah, there seems to be a hell of a of a correlation. <clears throat> the money is too good. Oh, I'm sorry. The money is good too. Mashing up data from glassdoor.com, T Quatlas reported salaries for blockchain related jobs in the US hit an average of $105,000 per year, more than two times the average salary in the United States location-wise. According to Job Offers Data, San Francisco and New York City are the U.S. hubs. 
London and Berlin lead for the EU and Singapore and Hong Kong in Asia. Please remember that London is no longer part of the EU. It is part of the United Kingdom and the United Kingdom told the EU to F straight off. The most sought after workers tend to be in the fields you'd expect. Engineering, 31%. Operations, 17%. Marketing, 13%. Design, uh, 105 That's weird. I think... Uh, that's not a percent. That's just, it looks like the number of design jobs that were tallied. Sales is 9%. According to 2019 job post on cryptocurrencyjobs.co, the research reported a strong increase in demand for sales, design, and compliance roles, which could signal a refocus on product launched and industry that's re, uh, starting to mature in a good way. In the same time, a number of jobs that never existed before are arising. Let's take a look at some of those. <clears throat> Decentralized finance product designer. Description. You provide the product vision and leadership in making cryptocurrencies easy and enjoyable to use for institutional and retail investors. You create UX assets that are simple, intuitive, and consistent across web and mobile platforms. Qualifications. Five years of experience in mobile-first financial product design. Good understanding of major chains, their use cases, and customer base. Bonus qualifications. Staking and pooling doesn't sound like sports to you. Oh, good God. DeFi PR director. Description. Create impactful messaging around DeFi products. Manage sensitive issues to maintain a company's reputation. Plan and document contingency and communication plans to a variety of stakeholders. Qualifications. Eight years or above relative experience <clears throat> or relevant experience in PR, marketing or corporate communications, preferably gained in banks and financial institutions. Bonus qual, a sixth sense during crisis management. Now that's my favorite one of all these. Oh my God. There is a D, there's a DAO architect. Uh, let's see, bonus. You can do the split between rage quit functionality and code is law. There's a DAO juror. Oh, let's read this one. Jurors deliberate and rules on cases and receive compensation. You're able to track and gather all relevant information to do your job well. Willing to be paid in crypto for subscriptions, dispute and appeal fees, qualifications. Cannot be under indictment for or have ever been convicted of a felony charge. Between the ages of 21 and 65, good character and has sufficient knowledge of the language of the court proceedings. A must-have qualification is ready to stake tokens or cryptocurrency to prove your integrity and skin in the game. So this is a bonding. And expect more bonding in the space. And now, so here, I'm, I'm going to just make it a little aside here. <clears throat> this is where staking is actually going to make some sense. Now, I know, I know, don't get me wrong. <clears throat> I am not for any other coin. You know me. However, staking is going to be a deal. And, and here's one of the things about it. Like if I stake, if I want to be a locksmith and I want to have any kind of customer base at all and not go to jail, I'm going to end up having to be licensed. And that licensure is going to require that I am bonded. So, and that's what you want. You want somebody who's got skin in the game to be unlocking your door at two o'clock in the morning when you're hammered as, okay, I'm not going to say the F word. When you're, 
dead drunk and you got thrown out of your Uber on your stoop and you left your keys at the bar and you're just, you're barely functional and able to dial a phone number to a locksmith. And that dude comes out at 3.30 in the morning, you want, you better be getting a bonded locksmith. Okay, because if he jacks with you or re- somehow or another makes like another key while you're all passing out on the couch to your, your abode so he can come rob you later, you want to make sure that he will lose all of his bonding. Now, the problem with that bonding is if I put up $20,000 bond to be a locksmith, and no, I don't know if that's how much it costs, that $20,000 sits there doing dick. At the very least, this is where staking and that whole, those whole interest-bearing Bitcoin accounts come into play. This is one of the things where it makes sense because there are going to be people that are going to be required by whatever, you know, either job or industry or whatever, they're going to require that you bond yourself. So you're going to have to put up some money. As long as you put up some money, you might as well be making money on that. And since we have multi-sig, which means that you could hold a SIG, the guy that gave you the job can hold another SIG, and then the insurance company that you're staked in with your Bitcoin can hold the other key, and then have somebody like Casa hold a fourth key. I don't know, clearly this needs to work in a different way, but this is where it makes sense. This is where I don't have a problem with it because it solves a certain problem. If I got to put up 20K anyway, I might as well be making interest off of it. That's all I'm saying. I wouldn't do it unless I had to because I'm not all that interested in the DeFi aspect. But where DeFi is probably going to come in as a market is going to be, hey, as long as you're going to be staked, you might as well get your employer to stake with us we got multi-sig and we'll make you 5% on the side. As to whether or not that actually works, I don't know because I've never been part of a DeFi. Other people say it works, but you see what I'm saying. This is, I think that that would be a viable revenue model. I really do. So, sorry, didn't mean to do that rant, but there is a Dow signaler. Uh, let's see, qual- bonus you must understand the Sablier Finance does and have an outstanding track record at keeping streamed funds coming. Oh, damn. Um, there's a head of institutional crypto coverage. Ooh, nice. Uh, work closely, closely with wealth, trading, staking, and custody product teams to refine a firm's approach to serving the institutional clients. Um, you have, uh, qualifications, you have great commercial instincts and high EQ, okay. Compliance officers, uh, crypto futures markets. There is a, oh God, head of stablecoin. What is this one? Refine the roadmap for stablecoin business, specify and build a platform for external stakeholders to build upon, develop relationships with key partners, including exchanges, DeFi protocol teams, and cryptocurrency market participants. Qualifications, strong understanding, interest in relationships and decentralized finance, ability to translate digital asset information effectively across compliance, legal engineering, and executive teams, five years of experience, two years in crypto. Bonus, you can explain the difference between USDT, USDC, USDK, GUSD, BUSD, DAI, SI, and HUSD, and etc. There's also 
crypto audit and tax director. Uh, tech, let's see, there is a crypto custody engineer and a QA automation engineer, data recovering and cleaning lead, chief staking officer. Oh no. <clears throat> the CSO apparently is charged with identifying and qualifying new staking customers for our large scale fault tolerance staking as a service infrastructure and build staking partnerships with exchanges, custody providers, OTC desk, asset managers, and large financial institutions. All that shit is, is outside sales. I mean, <laughs> that's all that is? Okay, uh, head of remote. What the hell? Shape and manage hybrid remote teams. Ensure that being remote is a competitive advantage. Ensure our digital infrastructure is upgraded. Influence and guide our company culture and habits of communications. Uh, bonus, high EQ and leadership sense. Okay, okay. Grants and bounties lead. So somebody is in there for uh, getting inbound uh, monetary stuff from governments and stuff like that. A China community strategist is also, well, is, is actually the last one. Apparently you're going to design and execute on crypto community strategy for a Chinese market, incorporating researched and learned best practices. So if you need a job in crypto, apparently as long as you're not in Bitcoin, you can get on with any of these shit coins uh, because I don't think any of these actually ended up being a Bitcoin company. And that's what you want. <clears throat> you wanna be working for a good solid Bitcoin company, not a cryptocurrency company, not a shitty exchange, what you want is the Bitcoin company. You want to be working with somebody like Lolly or Swan. You want to be employed by those people at least as a contractor. Okay. And there's, there's many of them out there. It's bull Bitcoin. If you get a job with bull Bitcoin, dude, that would be wonderful. My problem is I don't live in any of these places and I can't, I'm not going to move because I'm not going to tell, look at my wife and say, Hey, you remember that 10 year track job that you worked your ass off to try to get for the last 10 years and you need like four more years uh, of being a professor. Uh, yeah, that's not, no, we're just going to move. I'm not going to do that shit. I'd, I'd rather die poor and underneath a bridge than to destroy that thing. Now I know you're pointing and laughing. That's fine. But I just, I'm in for the adventure, bro. Seriously. I'm in, I'm, I'm kind of in for the adventure of life. And that brings me to the, the closing remarks uh, for the, the morning roundup, because that's the last thing we're going to talk about. Um, I've been thinking a lot lately about retirement and what that word actually means versus what we've been led to thinking it, <laughs> led to thinking it, uh, it means. And honestly, I, I, again, I think we're being fed a lot of shit because here's what I see. Oh my God. If you're not fully employed for at least 45 years straight and pumping everything that you can into your retirement account, then you're going to be miserable. And this is okay. So that's what you're told. And I'm not saying it's wrong. Okay but I'm looking at it from a different perspective. I'm looking at it from like the perspective of what I saw my uncle go through. He did all that. 
And he took, he did that so well, he took early retirement at 55. I mean, he bolted with a buttload of cash. Last I saw him before he died, he was sitting in a chair at his home, staring at a wall. And for the 20 years that I saw before that day, I saw him get bored with golf, get bored with building model airplanes, get bored with taking walks, get bored with, you know, get bored of just, I just saw a man who was bored to death. He didn't know what to do. And then he died. I mean, that's the one thing that, you know, we're all assured of. And I know it's sad, but we're all going to die. Is the way you want to live your life to work your ass off for somebody else to get paid a freaking pittance so that everything is, is known, every day is known, every hour of every week. You know exactly what's going to happen, with the exception of some surprises. But you go to work at the same place. You go to work with the same people. You go to, wait, go to work at the same time. You work on the same shit all the time. And you do it. And you stuff as much crap into your retirement account as you possibly can so that you can do what? Wait to die? I know I'm getting this wrong and I know you're pointing and laughing and that's okay. But man, I mean, I'm almost at the point where I'm like, when somebody says shit like this to me, I'm almost at the point of doing the whole Roy Batty speech where I've seen things that you people can't believe. I've seen chips on fire outside of the Orion Nebula. I mean, I'm almost there. I'm literally almost there. I've seen some really weird shit and it's because I never ever lived my life in a way that anybody else would think would be acceptable. Screw you. I don't need your acceptance. Last one of the day is Turkey's biggest bank now works with Binance. Ha! Binance has partnered with one of the largest banks in Turkey, Akbank, Akbar, which lets customers deposit and withdraw Turkish lira. Robert Stevens writing for Decrypt.co sometime this morning. He says, Binance today announced a partnership with one of the largest banks in Turkey, Akbank. Akbank. That sounds like Aflac. Binance's customers can use the bank to deposit and withdraw Turkish lira. <gasps> oh my God. I'm so, I'm so surprised. Buying cryptocurrencies with Turkish lira is already possible through its partnerships with companies such as Simplex and Coinall. But the partnership with Akbank now lets Turkish customers bank on Binance. With the most competitive fees in Turkey, it said. As part of our mission to continue working on increasing the freedom of money worldwide, and notably in a country that is fast adopting digital assets, we are expanding the availability options to lower the barrier to entry, said Binance CEO Xingpeng Zhao in a statement. Binance and Bank is the first bank to integrate directly with Binance. Quote, as the industry scales with our products and services that grow in tandem, the availability and process of investing, exchanging, and trading shitcoins I'm sorry, crypto will become more and more seamless, said Zhao. The partnership with the large bank seems like an about turn from old money, which has historically refused to bank with cryptocurrency businesses. Like many other crypto companies, in the past, Binance resorted to banking with crypto capital, a payments processor for crypto companies that allegedly tricked banks into thinking it was running a real estate business. The main people behind crypto capital have since been indicted for fraud and or money laundering. 
But Turkey appears to be warming up to crypto. The government's testing a blockchain-based Turkish lira, and 20% of Turkish citizens own or use cryptocurrency, according to a 2019 poll by Statista. Even more, in a survey with Austrian bank ING, which showed that the world was getting sick of crypto, 62% of Turkish respondents held positive opinions, opinions about crypto. Correspondingly, other crypto exchanges have also upped their game when it comes to the Turkish lira. Before Binance supported the lira, rival crypto exchange Huobi Global announced in October that it would add a Turkish lira tether pairing by the end of 2019. And that's going to do it for Morning Roundup. All right, today's daily train wreck is in a, in and of itself a train wreck. Why? Because I had one train wreck ready for you, and it was about this whole Tron versus Steemit thing. And they had a blog post. Let's see what the if I can get the name of this blog post up. It was an open letter to the community concerning HF22-5. And this was a Steemit blog, um, and <clears throat> and it was outlining some pretty hairy and circus-like activities surrounding the whole uh, Steemit Tron debacle that's going on. Now, here's the funny thing that 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 um, that happened. Um, I was sent this uh, this blog post by uh, Michael Wolf, also known as was it Michael? Yeah, I think it was, or I, I was not sent it by. Uh, let me see where this came from. Uh, do, 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 do. I got it from Eric R. Wade. Um, oh, no, no, Wizzy Blast. Yeah, Wizzy Blast sent me the actual, the actual thing. Um, but uh, Michael Wolf had written back and said something about that they don't mention in a post that the exchanges used users' funds on the exchanges to stake and vote for a single blog producer. The The whole blog post went into, like I said, some really hairy stuff about what's going on with the Steemit and, and the, the Tron takeover of Steam. And it looks like there's an outright revolt going on. Now, what happened to the blog post? I can't get to it. It's error 504. And I've tried it on two different browsers. It looks it looks very much like uh, uh, somebody at Steam took that thing down. So hold on for just I just want to try one thing here. Uh, come on, hold on, you can do it. You can do it. I it may be that the entire Steam at site is down. And that's probably not going to bode well if that, yeah, I've got this, my browser wheel is spinning and spinning for steamit.com. And guys, this kind of, I don't know, it kind of doesn't look good, but it's, it's clearly a train wreck. Now, okay, thankfully, thankfully, I've got people like Dergigi looking out for me and he sent me a different train wreck. <laughs> this is from Mike Dudas. That's right. Mike, old Mike Dudas says, what waste? 98% of Bitcoin mining machines will fail to produce a block during their average lifetime of 1.5 years.
Nobody has time for this kind of shit, Mike. That's not waste. Ah, uh, that's the point of mining is to incentivize people to secure the network. You secure the network with hash rate. To get hash rate, you need to have a shit ton of mining or not a shit ton. The more hash rate you have, the more security you have securing the blockchain, whatever that is. It doesn't have to be Bitcoin, okay? The more hash rate you have, the more security you have. The, if you want more security, you're going to end up with more hash rate. Or conversely, if you want to make money, you need to get hash rate onto the chain to secure the thing that you're trying to get because you're mining. The incentives kind of work both ways. It's a two-way street. The, the fact that people, the, the, the system of Bitcoin incentivizes, in a way, greed, and I'm not a big fan of greed, but whatever, <clears throat> it does have its place. Greed has its place. I'm not ever going to be like Gecko and say greed, for lack of a better term, is good. No, greed is never good, but it is necessary sometimes. And in this particular case, if you want security on the network, then you're leveraging greed. That's just the way this shit works. So I think Mike may be going, I think he's showing his proof of stake. Uh, I think he's going to end up in, in you know, uh, being a big hero for proof of stake because of boiling the oceans and all the other nonsense that we hear about with mining. All you end up with is an insecure monetary asset that I wouldn't want to hold. Why? because it's insecure. Why is it insecure? Because there's no proof of work. Why is there no proof of work? Because a bunch of diaper wearing bedwetters decided that they wanted to make money off of your stupidity and your ignorance. I would rather have somebody just be greedy. That's, I mean, like I said, greed in and of itself has nothing to, or is not good, but it is necessary. Now, greed that leverages your ignorance, that's a different deal. Screw you guys. I don't need you. This is what proof of stake is. That's what proof of stake is. It's leveraging your ignorance for other people to make a whole bunch of money. That's not what this is about. This is about security of the chain. You don't get security of the chain unless you have hash rate. The more hash rate, the more security. The more hash rate, the more likely your chances of being able to get paid. And that's the whole reason we've asked you to secure the damn blockchain in the first place. These are two jet airplanes flying in the sky in formation. They are not at odds. They are on this, they're playing on the same team. One is the lead, one is the wingman, and they fly in pretty graceful lockstep with each other. What Mike Dudas wants you to do is look at this as an adversarial thing, and it's not. It's just, I'm sorry, it's, it's just not. That's going to do it for your smoldering pile over there in the corner. Let's go ahead and get this done, because we are in such need of humor right now. We've got, Dad says, jokes. Yes, Dad does say jokes. <clears throat> Did you know a school of piranha can devour a child in 30 seconds? Anyway, today I lost my job at the aquarium. 
that's some that's that's some juicy tidbit of dad says jokes right there. So it's Monday. Clearly, this is not coming to you at the four o'clock in the morning time. I'm sorry. I I do apologize, but things happen. Um, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to get it uh, off tomorrow at four o'clock in the morning either, because I got to uh, I got to go take my wife to a checkup at the doctor's office, and um, she comes first. Sorry, I love you guys, but dude, my wife comes first. And so do my kids. Um, other than that, it's been weird and it's going to stay weird. We're at $8,857 for Bitcoin. It is 10.53 a.m. Uh, Central Standard Time, just so you know. We don't know what's going to happen. And the whole dip being, we don't know if it was the coronavirus that caused the dip. We don't know. And there's a whole bunch of freaking out about the coronavirus Try not to freak out, man. You're probably going to be fine. Wash your hands. Stay, you know, if you're really freaking out about it, stay six feet away from people. Don't shake their hands. Say, I'm sorry. I'm doing, doing my bit for king and country. It's, you know, I, I love you. You're a great guy. Don't want to shake your hand right now because coronavirus. Whatever. Just, but really, remain calm. That doesn't mean be stupid. It just means remain calm. It's not like that there's not a coronavirus. There is. It's out there. If you're immunocompromised, it may very well kill your ass. Try not to get it. Stay away from crowds. I don't know how to, I don't know how to do it. But whatever, however you decide to live your life, do it without panic in these times because that shit will get your ass killed. That shit will get your ass killed real quick. With that, I will see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.